0: Hello, I'm Katrina Strickland, editor of Good Weekend magazine. Good Weekend Talks will be back in late January 2023 with plenty of exciting interviews booked in the calendar. But for now, please enjoy one of our most popular episodes from the past year. And don't forget to subscribe and share.
1: Hi, I'm Conrad Marshall, and from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Good Weekend Talks, a magazine for your ears in which we take a deep dive into the definitive stories of the day. We've recently relaunched the podcast into a new look, or should I say new sound, format in which top journalists from across our newsrooms host conversations with the people capturing the imagination of Australians right now. In this week's episode, we speak with Julie inman grant Australia's eSafety Commissioner, about her work leading the world's first regulatory agency designed to keep us safe online. 42%
0: of two-year-olds have access to a digital device. By the time they're four, it's 94%.
1: She's been named one of Australia's most influential women, which is no surprise when you look at her resume, featuring stints working with US Congress on high-level legislation, as well as senior positions with Silicon Valley giants such as Twitter and Microsoft.
0: Half of my investigators were clinically depressed. If you're human, you can't help but think about what that might mean to your child or to a loved one.
1: I'm really pleased to host this discussion today, which could go anywhere from cyberbullying to sexting, revenge porn to fraud. Welcome, Julie.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Conrad. It's such a pleasure to finally meet you.
1: And you also. So I just wanted to start off by asking you, when you're talking to somebody at a party, telling people what it is that you do, what's the what's the short, pithy sort of answer? Like they ask you, what do you do?
0: Well, I think what I do tends to be a barbecue-stopping conversation. <laughs> so, uh, what I generally do is, uh, you know, I don't come right out with, "Yeah, I've got investigators that look at child sexual exploitation and pro-terrorist content all day." Yeah. Um, what I'll talk about is I try and relate to whoever that person is. Of course, I'm probably meeting a lot of fellow parents who are grappling with online safety issues. Yep. So I'll say. I used to work for the technology industry, and now I regulate them for a range of online harms. I talk about what they are, and um, you know, but I believe prevention is really important, and so I usually talk to them about. You know, what kind of guidance we have on our, our, our website. And usually I get pushed back into a corner because everybody has a story. Right. Everyone has a struggle, um, whether their child is 10 or whether they've gone through something when they're 19. And I'm happy to listen and give advice where I can.
1: Let's zoom back a little bit now and, and walk listeners, maybe how you came to this position, because you're, you're American, you're from Washington State. No little girl grows up in Seattle and goes, when I grow up, I want to be Australia's e-safety commissioner. <laughs> um, what was your pathway to, to this role?
0: what well, it was a long circuitous pathway, and you're absolutely right. I'm, you know, this is really gro- – online safety is growing as an endeavor, and I would be – totally lying if I say I didn't fall into it. And a lot of people fall into it. But really how it started was I've always been interested in politics and public policy and social justice. So after I went to uni in Boston, I went to Washington, D.C. with Big ideals and even bigger hair because, you know, it was the early 1990s. And I worked for my hometown congressman. And I was working on a range of issues, social issues, really, homelessness, women's, children's, and family issues. And he popped his head in and in, into my cubicle one day and said, hey, you know, they're, they're – um, deregulating the telco industry and we have this small little company in our electric called Microsoft. <laughs> wondering if you'll work on technology and telecoms issues as well. This was 1995, so before there was an internet.
1: So Netscape Navigator has only just been born
0: mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, and uh, I mean, of course, the players in in the market are very diff- different at that time. There's, there's Oracle, there's Sun Microsystems, there's Novell. Microsoft was 25,000 and um, employees at the time, so it was. Mm. It wasn't a, a huge behemoth, you know. Apple was there. They'd seen their rise and their fall. AOL was a very big thing. So, uh, very, very different time. So, very fortunate to be working at the cross section of technology, social justice, and uh, online safety. And. Um, for my sins. After leaving the Hill, I went to graduate school. I did some work in the not-for-profit sector. I lived in um, Brussels and Italy for a while. And and then I was sleeping on my friend's couch and I got a call from Microsoft asking me to come interview to become one of their first lobbyists in Washington DC. And this was in uh, November
1: 1995. Okay. And the e-safety space must have looked incredibly different there. Or or was there already sort of a, a threat Online? Were there things people needed to be aware of in the very early days?
0: Well, I often refer to that time as tech policy ground zero mm. because right as I started, of course, members of Congress were concerned about online pedophiles uh, reaching children through the internet. You know, the internet was in its infancy. There were also a range of bills in Congress at the time to sort of taxi commerce. So we did didn't want it to be over-regulated and in really kind of undermine the promise of what we believe the internet to be. And I definitely was wearing rosy techno-utopian glasses at the time. Right.
1: What was it you were doing at Twitter? You came to Twitter after that. Were you, Are you Working for the enemy in that um, in that role.
0: Um, well, you know, I spent seventeen years at Microsoft, and you know, was I, I felt like I had you know nine lives there. I started when I was twenty seven. I left when I was about twenty three. I started you know as as a single young young woman. Throughout my tenure there, the proportion of men to women was about seventy percent men to thirty percent women. So in my single days, we used to say, well. The odds are good, (laughs) but the goods are odd. Um, But... (laughs) <laughs> the odds actually did stay the same, and and there's the same really? today in terms of the proportion of men to women in in the industry. So, you know, part of that is a is a pipeline problem. I had a wonderful experience at at, at Microsoft, and I ultimately left Microsoft because I took the whole concept of safety by design to them. Uh, I was sitting in um, product reviews, and and they were looking for security vulnerabilities and privacy vulnerabilities, but I kept saying that there were a lot of personal harms that were happening on platforms like Skype and even on Xbox at the time was a pretty toxic interactive experience. And I was told, well, you know, we're never going to be a social media company, Julie. We're becoming an enterprise company. You right. know, what, what is protecting users for harm really going to get us? And so I knew that my time there was done. Uh, so I returned uh, back with my husband back t- back to Australia with uh, three kids in tow. And um, uh, I did some consulting for a while, and then Twitter came knocking. And this was right after the Arab Spring.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I truly believed in that whole idea of the Internet as a great leveler, speaking truth to power and giving people, women, and marginalized communities a voice where they they wouldn't otherwise have it. When I actually got into the chair and started to see how targeted online invective and hate was really surfacing, I guess, really the underbelly of society, and that prejudice, hate, misogyny uh, was alive and well, that filled me with a lot of concern. Um, But Twitter gave me a lot of uh, latitude to do creative things. So I started a program called Position of Strength, which was a women's safety and empowerment program, and I took that as far as I could. I used to be able to work with the product teams to try and change some of the the safety features uh, with the trust and safety team. So I was there at a period of time where they were starting to invest. You know, ironically, when I was interviewing for that job uh, with Twitter... Charlotte Dawson tragically uh, took her own life.
1: After a long and public struggle with depression, television personality Charlotte Dawson's life has ended tragically. In 2012, Charlotte was admitted to hospital with depression after she received a barrage of vicious comments on Twitter.
0: That, uh, of course, was referred to as the Twitter suicide. It started a huge petition that went to the government. Um, at the time, Malcolm Turnbull was the ICT minister, and his parliamentary secretary was Paul Fletcher. Um, and that is what um, encouraged the government, it was the Abbott government at the time, to create the Children's E-Safety Commissioner. And they did. They started with children first because they thought, who can argue yeah. with the fact that, that children aren't vulnerable? And they took a number of functions from a number of different departments and agencies, they built the Children's E Safety Commissioner. Alistair McGibbon was the first E Safety Commissioner, but I remember Paul Fletcher calling me and me um, at Twitter and Facebook and Microsoft and Yahoo and all the, the the companies in to see a draft of 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 the bill and what the um, agency would look like. Believe it or not, I was the only I was the only company representative that showed up. Right. Why? Well, to me, I'm a pragmatist. I saw that this was coming. And I thought, well, yes, I want to see what I'm up against and I want to see what I can shape. I think some of the other companies took a very different tact. They didn't want to be seen as, quote unquote, complicit in terms of encouraging any form of regulation or a regulator. They saw this as almost... Creating a certain domino effect. Mm-hmm. So, as as the bill uh, came and and the office came into place, uh, there was a similar situation where it was just Twitter and Yahoo. We we were given the choice of becoming what was called a tier one provider, where we would provide um, an around the clock safety contact. And as a result, um, if there were violations against us. Um, actions wouldn't be taken. If you became a tier two and you didn't provide that sort of round the clock support to the government, the penalties were much steeper. But that's what Google, Instagram and Facebook, they they chose to take that second path.
1: Okay. What do other countries do in this space? Like why I've, I've been told, for instance, that the e-safety office is unique, mm-hmm. um, world first. What is it that we do that others don't?
0: Uh, Well, there is no other country in the world, with the exception of Fiji, that has an e-safety commissioner, but that is changing. So I just spent three weeks going around the world, going to Ottawa, speaking to the Canadians who want to set up a digital safety commissioner. Um, Speaking to others in, um, in, in the U.S., I think they're a long way away from doing that sort of thing, but they may expand the FTC's remit to cover children's privacy, perhaps, and maybe more safety. I then went to the UK, where they're considering the Online Safety Bill, and that would be empowering Ofcom, their media regulator, to do a lot of this, a lot of similar um, actions that we do. Um, and then I spent time in in Brussels, where they've just um, passed the Digital Services Act and, and and another piece of legislation that will deal with child sexual exploitation material. So um, we're very much at the at the vanguard, um, and we've been in operation for seven years, and. You know, we have sort of had what I would describe as inorganic growth, so we started as the Children's E Safety Commissioner with a youth-based cyberbullying scheme and then the scheme that's been around for well over 20 years around child sexual exploitation material when I when I joined in 2017 I, I was asked to take on the issue of revenge porn mm. said I'm happy to take on that issue but I'm not going to call it revenge porn revenge okay. for what yeah you know th- yeah. Th- I'm not going to use inherent victim blaming language let's call it what it is image-based abuse and it's taken a it's taken a while that was sort of the first fight I I, I had <laughs> with people in the government but we call it revenge porn I'm like that doesn't mean we have to let's yeah. let's change the lexical and so we did, and, and that's that started to take hold about three months in, I was then made the e-safety commissioner. So all of a sudden, I was covering the entire population of Australia. No additional resources, no real definition or explanation about what what that was we're, we're, was given new powers in the wake of the Christchurch atrocity. Um, around abhorrent, violent material. And then we had this tremendous opportunity with the development of the um, Online Safety Act, which end-to-end took about three years Mm. to develop. And so that was just implemented in January of this year. So we have a new scheme around uh, serious adult cyber abuse. We'd received well over 5,000 informal reports of adult cyber abuse and our adult cyber abuse reports were outpacing our youth based cyberbullying reports. Mm. Um, it's targeted at a high threshold, and we also have two sets of powers uh, around um, mandatory industry codes and what we call the basic online safety expectations, which will Target processes and systems at, at a much greater level, so that's more in line with the kinds of approaches that the Europeans are looking at taking. But yeah, we've definitely been at the the front of the peloton. We've been um, climbing Mont Mount Ventoux without anyone <laughs> drafting behind us. And you know, really, what I think it's it's going to take is an, a range of pincher moves of governments around the world uh, really focusing on the tech sector and in encouraging them to do the right thing. And now this is going to sound very strange, Conrad, but even as a regulator, I don't think regulation is totally the answer. Okay. And that is because we apply regulation after the damage has been done. So I often talk about the three Ps, prevention, to, you know, the education and awareness to give Australians the tools they need to be able to understand what the risks are and mitigate those risks, protection through the regulatory schemes so that we do have some teeth and um, some penalties, not only to tackle the platforms, but also the perpetrators, yes. and then what I call proactive and systemic change. We could play a game of whack-a-mole, but that's not ultimately going to make the world safer what we need to do is anticipate the risks, stay ahead of them. So we need to understand how end-to-end encryption or deep fake technology or the metaverse or the decentralized world may I'm pose a range of just harms. I'm hearing all these words. Exactly. Um, but we also have a, a huge initiative called Safety by Design where that seeks to put the burden back on the platforms themselves.
1: Yeah, I've heard you speak about this often, yeah. Safety by Design. So what is it exactly?
0: Yeah, well... Think about 55 years ago. Do you remember riding in the front of a, a bench seat in the car with, with no seatbelt on?
1: Uh, I don't, but I can. Yeah, I can imagine. yeah, Well,
0: yeah. Maybe I've I've got a few years on you, but <laughs> but that's that's how it was. And Ralph Nader, who's a well-known consumer advocate, was a young lawyer at the time, wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed. It was about the. Chevy Corvair, but he 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 looked at the the number of fatalities that happened when you know children were in the back seat and an accident happened and flew through the windshield and you know it was clear that if car manufacturers embedded seatbelts, that lives would be saved and that is precisely what happened. Now at the time, the car manufacturers pushed back vehemently against have, having to put safety features and uh, technologies into their cars. But if you think about it now, when we step into our car, we take for granted that the seat belts are there, that there'll be airbags and anti-lock brakes. And car manufacturers actually compete based on safety features and their premium features. But we've had this long era of technological exceptionalism. And the companies don't want to be told. And we're not telling them how to design this. in. all we're saying is, assess the risks up front. You know how your platforms have been weaponized. You know what the harms are. So what's build a, a what's a seatbelt
1: that you could build into Facebook right. or Twitter?
0: Well, so for instance, there are there are child sexual abuse pro, um, proactive detection systems that are also used in terms of terrorist content, particularly mm-hmm. around known, known images that can be deployed fairly easily, and only about two hundred companies out of that that constellation of hundreds of thousands of tech companies in the world are are actually using you know it's the conversation controls that have evolved over time you know to be able to report to be able to block to be able to mute yep. um so these have been evolutionary rather than revolutionary really um, and and companies have done it i think after self uh, in to a certain degree uh, out of self interest because people will start to vote with their feet if a platform is too toxic. And, and you know, the game the gaming companies really discovered this and were m- much more forward-looking on safety protections than even the, the, the social media companies. Yeah.
1: Slurs and insults with the ultimate goal of this harassment being to bully you off the platform. The Black Hokage... Organizing, organizing
0: an online protest, which is going to be called hashtag a day, day off Twitch to show five Twitch, five to five show Twitch that people are upset about these hate and raids. ...better in protecting your creators them. if you're social truly people. trying to be
1: inclusive. This type of stuff deflates people and runs them to your competitors. This is part of my. There was a profile story written about you in in which one of your staff, a, a veteran cyber investigator, was asked about the video that he couldn't shake from his mind, combing through all of this sludge that your office has to do. You must come across some of the most vile content imaginable. Is there anything, is there any one video or exchange or horrible thing that you can't shake?
0: Absolutely, I remember the first time I saw an image at an Interpol conference in Sydney in in two thousand nine of a father penetrating his infant child. Until you see something like that, you you just can't contemplate what that means, or or what 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 that is. And so every investigator is going to have that moment. Um, and often there are triggers. Um, and let me be honest, these. The 40 investigators I have on my team are absolute heroes. When you or I think we've had a bad day at work, think about what they subject themselves to every single day. You know, We had 21,000 reports last year of uh, um, illegal content, the vast majority of which is child sexual abuse material, but also ter- pro-terrorist content. Mm. Some of the stuff they see and they have to write about in detail, so we'll hand up, stand up in a court of law. You know, beheadings of Swedish tourists, um, you know, the flaying of Mexican cartel victims, you know, being tortured. Terrible, terrible stuff. And what you see often is, you know, a trigger. I I think I recall the story of our lead investigator. You know, he had a child who was 18 months old. And when he saw an image of an 18-month-old, you know, you you can't – if you're human, you can't help but – think about what that might mean to your child or to a loved one. So one of the things we do is we make sure that they all have psychological support. Um, So we have a pretty extensive um, health and wellness program. We've got requirements about how long they can look at the content. We have very, very strong peer support uh, systems in there because these investigators can't Go home when they see something bad and unload on their partners. Uh, you you just you just can't do that. They need to support each other, so they're they're quite tight. We look at the team's mental health. We quarterly have them um, speaking to uh, psychologists, and believe it or not, um, we also have some video games. When you play games like Tetris, yes, it can prevent some of these images from lodging into the long term memory. So. The other thing that we did, um, the first week I, I walked into the eSafety Commission, I was heading an audit report, and it indicated that half my investigators were clinically depressed and that this their systems kept failing and that they weren't using readily available image masking technologies. So one of the most important things I feel that I did was get together a technology team to work with the investigative team, and we've built our entire investigative system from scratch so that we can, we're living safety by design, if you will, by putting those technologies in so they don't have to look at any of of this content more than they need to. Fantastic.
1: I had read that you like to keep yourself at the coalface too so that you understand what's going on. And I was going to ask you about how you debrief and make sure that you don't take too much on. But I wanted to say, look so I have a nine-year-old son who's just become acquainted with screens and he is so young, so immature, but so utterly able to navigate his way around that tech space. I've been amazed at how kids can swim in those waters and play games and search things up um, with shocking sort of precision and speed. How do I protect him? You have three kids. You have a 15-year-old girl and Um, A pair of 10-year-old twins? Yep. Um, What's the advice for parents out there?
0: (laughs) I just say my my daughter is 16-year-old and I knew that the world was going to be very different when she was about three and was more interested in playing with my phone than she was playing with a doll. Mm. And when you think about, you know, the lights and the games and the graphical user interface – we, we all now know that these are designed to be addictive and, and to draw people in. I will get to the safety tips, but I, I will say, you know, even in the five and a half years I've been in this role with COVID and lockdowns, we're even in a worse place than we were before. And that's because, you know, parents were desperate during the lockdowns yep. to do their own jobs, to homeschool their kids, to keep them entertained. And... My sense is that parents, as a survival mechanism, had to be more permissive with technology. Yep. So they they handed them phones. They let them go on TikTok and platforms at well t- too too young an age. And so my ten year old twins may be exaggerating. They're in fifth grade, but they they say, "Mom, you know, every kid except for us has a phone, and I know s- some of their friends are on TikTok." They're just not ready yet. There is a reason, and and 13 isn't right for every child, but they just don't have the cognitive ability to be able to deal with that, to to self-regulate, to deal with the, the content, conduct, and a whole range of other things that we need to prepare them for. There's some really basic things that parents can do. The first is the minute we hand over a digital device. We talk about rights and responsibilities. Now, we've got information on our website for parents of zero to fives to be and to teach them to be safe be kind ask for help and make good choices and that's because about 42 percent of two-year-olds have access to a digital device by the time they're four it's 94 percent so we as parents are the front lines of defense yeah we're of course working with the schools and when we get to that school age we're talking about the four r's of the digital age teaching respect responsibility building digital resilience, and honing critical reasoning skills, um, because we can't hover over them 24-7. You know, we need to talk to them about what could happen in age-appropriate ways. And so that's why we've got a lot of evidence-based research. We work with psychologists about how to talk to your kids about what they're happening online. The best advice I can give is, you know, set the limitations early. We've got family technology agreements on our, our, our website. And we know that when children actually sit down with their parents and talk about the rules and restrictions, they're more likely to follow them. So you know, that might just be you've, you have one hour a day or two hours a day that you can be on it and then that's it. Yep. Make sure that your kids, particularly younger kids, are using technology in open areas of the home. We're all guilty of using technology as the digital babysitter, but some of the worst things that my investigators are seeing now online is kids being coerced into creating and self-producing child sexual exploitation material and the privacy of their bedrooms and bathrooms and in some of them you can hear parents calling them down for dinner in the next room Oh my God. so we're we're seeing that we're seeing a lot more sexual extortion again predators um, using faker imposter accounts meeting um, young people on snap or tiktok or instagram taking them offline asking for a sexy skype and then extorting them so Keep them in open areas of, of the home so you can see how they're reacting to the technology. You can occasionally be looking over their shoulders. Make sure that you're installing parental controls and you know what apps uh, they're using. Having those dinner conversations, talking early and often about, uh, we did this quite a bit um, over, over COVID period. You know, they, my kids weren't going to school, so I couldn't ask them what was happening at school or um, how their sporting was, so I'd say what are you doing online? Is there any drama? Is, are there any rumors? Letting them know that they can come to you and you're not going to engage in device denial and that you're going to help them through e- e- yeah. e- anything. Now, 95% of Australian parents tell us that online safety is one of the preeminent parenting challenges for them, and it's hard. So part of what our website is meant to do is to make it easier for for parents and for young people and for educators because it is a whole of community response. We can't put the burden solely on parents, um, and we help we need to help them demystify some of these these things, and we're trying to reach young people themselves. We've just uh, launched the Scroll campaign with a, a, a range of young young digital natives who are, you know, we're creating compelling video content, but also guidance using language that Young people will respond to. I mean, we talk about cyberbullying. That's not a construct that young people use. They'll talk about being mean online, creating drama, um, or, you know, creating, starting rumors or sending nudes. They don't talk about image based abuse. Yeah. So we need to connect with young people by co designing content uh, with young people. So those are some of the basic things. 95% of parents tell us it's their biggest challenge but only about 10% will actually seek out this information until something goes wrong. Right. So we need to make sure that we are being vigilant, we are thinking about it. I mean, reaching parents is really really hard. We find that when we do school presentations, it's we're reaching the same parent, the same parents that aren't really really engaged in every aspect of their kids' lives are the are the parents that turn up for these seminars. So we need to figure out how we reach the parents that are doing two or three jobs or the single parents that that are just trying to get by and may not have time to be thinking about these types of things. And, and I think that's the biggest concern is parents have a lot of blind spots right now because apps that kids are using change all the time. Technology is changing all the time. Kids are good at obfuscating. I mean, we all like to take risks and mm. circumvent authority—that that hasn't changed—but it's much much easier to do online now, and and the stakes are really high when you talk about online risks. Are they ever?
1: Let's just end on um, a, a more positive note sure. um, tonight. By the time this podcast released, Friday night footy between my beloved Richmond Tigers and the Fremantle Dockers will have happened, and I assume Richmond will have won by of ten course. goals. Um, but you have a special role there tonight. Um, you've been invited, I think, to to toss the coin. This is a, a game in sort of honor of e safety. What's no, what's going on?
0: I'm not going to toss the coin, but I have the um, distinct pleasure to be standing. Up and talking to a range of civic leaders and players, uh, alongside Tanya Hosh, AFL's head of uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, We've been working together for the past uh, two and a half years on the the "Play It Safe and Fair" online campaign, because, of course, your beloved um, Tigers and everyone else. we're engaging with the fan base. And there's during... been such
1: a shift in this area recently, right? I mean, it's a good time to mark a couple of years ago. We, we've gone from sort of this position of not drawing any attention to the trolls saying horrible things, throwing racist abuse at players to a position now where we're trying to call those out. What's what's this program do?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it it is about letting people know that you know, playing it safe and fair on the field and online is really, really important. There have been some really brave, I would say, role models, whether it's Chad Wingard or Buddy Franklin or Alira Alire or Taylor uh, Harris, who have experienced devastating abuse. And if, if you talk to some of the Indigenous players, and of course, the Indigenous round is usually when there's the most Amount of racist, prejudiced, and and online hate directed at players that experience daily discrimination. This compounds that yeah. um, their tar- their families are targeted. It it's devastating for them personally. It undermines the enjoyment of the game. Um, I've been really impressed to see uh, a lot of the players and the coaches standing up and saying, "Hey, this is not on," and the AFL taking action, having an online vilification policy, and doing what they can to be able to identify people who are engaging in this content and making sure that they're not able to come to the MCG or Marvel Stadium or, or go into the games, but. This is a cultural change and a behavioral change uh, program that's going to need to take a long time. And this partnership with the AFL was really important because even as a a, a transplant to Australia, uh, I love the game. But we want to reach the kids who are playing footy. I mean, we we learn the rules of the game and how to behave cord- cordially and you know, you pick up your mate when they when they fall down or you you know, accidentally tackled them in the wrong way, we need to be doing the same thing in the online world. And um, we're all living our lives out online, and that's not going to change. Um, But we need to take a stand. And Australians love their sport. No better way I can think of to be teaching these lessons than by role models that kids look up to.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Julie. I really appreciate it. It's lovely to finally meet you, and I'm glad there's somebody of your strength and capability trying to keep the internet safe for us all.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Good Weekend Talks is brought to you by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Subscriptions power our newsrooms. To support independent journalism, search subscribe Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Julia Carr-Katzel. Technical assistance from Cormac Lally. Editing from Conrad Marshall. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. And Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend.